Before we get started, a content warning for today's episode. We are going to be discussing in, uh, for duet, we are going to be discussing genocide and war crimes in a not fun way. And in episode 20, In the Hands of the Prophets, we will be discussing uh, religious extremism and how that affects school curriculum. So if either of those are a bit of a turnoff for you, uh, it might be good to skip this one or skip the skip to the episode that does that uh, isn't problematic for you. Welcome to Pod Space Nine, the last stop for Trash in the Alpha Quadrant. This is a rewatch podcast for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, featuring two veteran viewers and one newbie. My name is Justin, and I will be your away team commander. Joining me is my science officer, Anna, with acting ends in Jude. Jude, Anna, how you doing? Feeling good about yeah. being an acting ensign. <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm happy for you, Jude. You got your promotion. You got your, you got your I little have empty pip on your collar. Yep. My my ugly gray striped sweater. Yep. You know, I just thought as like as the series goes along and like the series changes, do you think I could promote myself to Admiral, right? Yeah. We can, yeah. We can, we can like change ourselves to a war council. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we can can have we can have some like fluid titles in this yeah, one. Yeah, we can be like, yeah, this is like this is one of like as people get promoted and change and stuff, we can sort of like uh go with it and change things. I think we can do that. Yeah, that'll be fun. All right. Tonight, we are covering our final episode of season one, um, because the way that first seasons always work with Star Trek shows is they get is because they're a first season, they're a little bit shorter. Voyager only had like 18 or something episodes in the first season, if I remember right, which is just how syndicated television worked, I guess. Tonight, we're covering the last two episodes of season one, Duet and In the Hands of the Prophets. 
Uh, Jude, you've got duet. Take us away. All right. Episode 19 of season one, duet, written a uh, story by Lisa Rich and Jean F- Kerrigan Fauci, teleplay by Peter Allen Fields, directed by James L. Conway. Uh, as mentioned in the content warning at the top of this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about the not fun kinds of war crimes in this episode. Um, so, you know, buckle up. The episode opens with Kira and Dax reminiscing about being troublemakers, which is basically the last fun thing in this episode. Uh, and they are interrupted by a ship requesting to dock for medical help. One of their passengers is sick with something called Kalinora and needs medication. Kira immediately recognizes the illness, which only affects those who were present at a labor camp she helped liber- liberate called Galatep. She dashes off to medical to greet the brave Bajoran survivor, only to find Bashir treating a Cardassian, who she immediately summons security to throw in jail for being a war criminal. Uh, this is me cautiously raising the war crimes horn as I was watching this episode. Uh, in Odo's office, Kira tries to explain to a, what I found at the time, curiously disengaged Cisco, uh, why this matters so much to her, describing the horror she witnessed in the camps. Uh, this is me slowly lowering the war crimes horn and putting it away, as we are now realizing these will not be the fun John Sheridan war crimes. Cisco speaks with the Cardassian, who says his name is Maritza, and that he is a filing clerk, nothing more, and that he does not, in fact, have Kalinora, but something else called Patrix. While a Bajoran resident sleeping off a, dr- a drunken disorderly screams for Odo to let him out so he doesn't have to be near a Cardassian. Cisco consults with Bashir, who calls bullshit and says there's no question that it's Kalinora, which is problem number one. Problem number two is a call from the Bajoran Minister of Defense, who congratulates Cisco on capturing a war criminal and can't wait to get his hands on him. The problem is Cisco isn't comfortable with Kira's arrest and doesn't want to turn him over if he isn't even sure the guy did anything, much less if they've even got the right guy at all or who he is. Cisco and Kira talk, and Kira makes an impassioned appeal to Cisco, calling on their new friendship and his faith in her as an officer to lead the investigation. She is compelling, finally, and he puts her in charge, despite his concerns about her lack of objectivity. She meets with Odo next, who says all they know so far is he appears to be who he says, a filing clerk who now teaches military filing at a military academy on Korra 2. Kira goes in to talk to him and begins the interrogation. In this opening salvo, Kira is cold, professional as she can be, while Maritza claims honesty and innocence. He admits he was at Galatep when confronted with Bashir's diagnosis, but that he just filed things. He never heard of any atrocities at all. He's definitely not just antagonizing Kira. No, he has nothing but glowing things to say about the camp's commander, Goldar Heel, a.k.a. the Butcher of Galatep, because definitely people who have the nickname the Butcher of Galatep do not commit atrocities. That just is just a thing that people call each other. While Kira interrogates Maritza, Sisko runs into problem number three. Our favorite non-liquid fascist, Gold Dukat, who snidely demands the man be let free since the Federation is so into freedoms, etc., etc., while, all di- while also dismissing any accusations of impropriety, that's his word, not mine, at Galatep. Between interrogation sessions, Kira and Dax talk again, and Kira worries that she is only out for vengeance, not the truth. They then head to Ops, where O'Brien has apparently retasked half the computer's power to let them do a zoom and enhance sequence on the single picture from Galatep that they could get their hands on with Maritza in it. Except that once they do zoom it, Maritza isn't the one who appears to be who they have. 
The man instead in the cell instead resembles Goldar Heel. Kira storms back into the cells and confronts Maritza Darheel, and he now blusters and brags, condescending to her about the crimes he committed and how pathetic the Bajorans were. He brags about how many killings he did and how much blood he spilled, blah, blah, blah. While doing so, he mentions the specific group Kira worked with, a detail that Odo, when Kira mentions it to him, finds odd that he would know. While Kira goes back in for another round of taunting, bloodthirsty interrogation with Darheel, Odo puts on his deerstalker and makes a bunch of requests and calls, including one to Gold Dukat. When, du- when Dukat hears that Maritza says he's Darheel, he's legitimately flabbergasted, since said Gull is years dead, and half of Cardassia apparently viewed his body in state. Additionally, it turns out Darheel was away from the camp when the mine collapsed, which causes Kalinora, happened, so he couldn't possibly have it. He then calls Korra too who tell him that he, before he headed for DS9, and specifically DS9, he put all his affairs in order. And finally, Bashir finds in his medical records from the Academy that he's been taking what amounts to a post-cosmetic surgery medication for the last few years. The pieces come together and they realize that this is, in fact, Maritza impersonating Darheel. When Kira confronts the now-confirmed Maritza, he rages in fumes before breaking down. He was too cowardly to do anything then, he says, but listen to the horrors. He wants to make Cardassia face the crimes they committed. Kira tells him it's brave, but wrong. She won't kill an innocent man and freeze him. As they leave the security office, discussing how he could try and put his life back together on Korra 2, the drunken Bajoran from the start of the episode, sneering in disgust, grabs a knife and kills Maritza, saying, he's a Cardassian, that's reason enough. Oof. What an episode. Uh, yeah, my summary leaves out the absolute banger performances yeah, uh, that were delivered gripping. in this episode. Yeah. Um, between uh, the actress who plays Kira, whose name just flitted straight out of my ear, and the guy who plays uh, Maritza Darheel, whatever his name is, um, they do a fantastic job. The guy who plays Maritza in particular, I think it really does an impressive job of of sort of sliding back and forth from like, I'm just a guy. I just like to file things to like, yeah, I love the screams. Woo! Like, and then, and then his breakdown is like completely believable too. Yeah. It's a rare case where the episode has like a double twist mm-hmm. and they're yeah. both like impeccably played out. Um, the actor who plays uh, Maritza is named Harris Ewan. Um, he is a very accomplished, uh, actor uh who was in hall who was work who worked in hollywood for like 50 years that tracks wow. yeah. yeah um of particular note i i think in relation to this episode is jewish yeah Interesting. Uh, yeah yeah i mean he does a fantastic work he does fantastic work in this episode like really mentioning he's jewish i think is a good segue if there is such a thing to the fact that we should probably i mean you have to uh, address at the top the the obvious parallels parallels maybe not the right word but obviously there is uh some real world material being ref being lifted yeah. here uh, you know the the nazi collaborators concentration yeah. camp stuff is a pretty obvious reference for this episode yeah the original pitch for this episode is based on a play uh called the man in the glass booth or at least that was like that was part of the inspiration for it, which is about 
it's it's a it is about a Jewish man who is falsely or who is accused of being a Nazi war criminal. Dang. Um, notably, Leonard Nimoy had starred in a stage production of it. Fascinating. <laughs> um, Six degrees of uh, Star yeah, Trek. It's, there. It's, yeah. Um, we're going to see there are a, a number of parallels you can make between the Cardassian about the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. Um, and it's going to be like the, because science fiction is a medium of metaphor, what Bajor represents can change from episode to episode. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it is at its, and like you, you can see it as part of like, there, there can be points where it is, you know, referencing, the, the the Holocaust and and German genocide, or I mean, like in some instances, including like how long term and the effects of the Bajoran occupation was British imperialism or yeah. uh, other European powers. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of layers that you can find in 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 the Bajoran Cardassian thing and. I think even in this episode, you can find a lot of real world parallels there as well, especially when you look at this episode in contrast to the next one. I think you see some really interesting ways in which Bajor can be different things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. To an extent that I think no other alien race ever gets in Star Trek, that versatility and the complexities yeah. Of one species. Um, because I mean, like, even other species that are, that have been cast members for, like, you know, full seven seasons or whatever. Like, Vulcans even are nowhere, like, Vulcans don't have internal politics as we yeah. see them on the show. Well, because uh, we don't get their, their homeworld. We yeah. get every other culture we see from the outside. We maybe visit the homeworld once in a while. And we get snippets of them as they visit. But DS9 is as much about Bajor the planet and Bajor the people as it is about DS9 the station and the Starfleet people that work there. Yeah. And that gives you that gives us a, a a truly unique, not point of view, but like a truly unique perspective into this culture that other Trek shows haven't gotten to to do. And I think it's really valuable because I don't think you can tell a story like this, like this episode in particular, with any kind of nuance on any other Trek, as well as you can do it here. Yeah. I'm sure other Treks have done that stuff, stories like this, but I think you you can do it with a lot more nuance and a lot more sophistication on this version. And I'm sure future seasons will show, will do it even better justice to this kinds of stuff. Yeah, I as think as it evolves. If we're talking about like not not the most fun or anything, but I think this like as a work of art, I think this is the best episode of season one. Yeah, um, it's it's a hard watch. Yeah, but I think it, I think it is like it is a fantastic script, and not a visitor and Harris Eulin knock it out of the park. Absolutely, because it's I mean, this is this is a especially with not a visitor and a Cardassian. Um, not will a become, visit. that's her name uh, will become a framework for a lot of good 
DS9 will occasionally co like there it's I think is like maybe like once or twice every few seasons they will bring out basically what is like this one sort of a two man play um, yeah and like there's a couple there's there's another episode which I think is in season three there, there's a couple more episodes with specifically Kira and a Cardassian uh, yeah which are all fantastic. I know I know exactly the ones that you mean. And yeah. yeah. Tentatively looking forward to them? Yeah. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know that I would have been looking forward to this one had I been forewarned, but I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a I think one thing that DS9 does to its credit is that the Cardassians are also not one dimensional. Yeah. Because yeah. because this episode isn't this episode isn't we can't prove something and so the Cardassian is going scot-free and we're clearing it up by having the angry drunk stab him. It yeah. is a lot more complicated than that. And Yeah. Yeah. And like Maritza's Maritza's motivation of like Cardassian needs to like the only way that Cardassian can move forward is to admit the atrocities that it's committed. Yeah. And like, this yeah, is how that was a do really, it. really interesting. We, we haven't gotten hardly anything about Cardassia to this point mm-hmm. before this to show that kind of nuance. So I, it's a really interesting idea that suggests that there's, that they are not the monolithic space Nazi force that they kind of have been depicted as. I'm one of my notes was uh, when I was watching this episode was that this, this episode makes me a lot more, a lot less comfortable playing Cardassians in Star Trek video games. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I guess, but I, I mean, it is a fair point. But on like, the other hand, like, you know, you, you could be playing Maritza too. Yeah. Like there are, it's clear, like Maritza is clearly indicating that this is not a, that there, there is more nuance to the situation than we're, we're being even sighted into. And I think the Bajoran, the fact that we get this incredible nuance from the Bajorans does indicate that we, we we do have more more nuance to the other cultures in Star Trek. We just don't ever see that because all we see is the 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 centimeter thick outer shell of these cultures that you know make it to interface with Starfleet. I can't think of another culture that we get. I mean, maybe this is bananas, but like Vulcan, not Vulcans, Romulans. Not even Klingons, because Klingons. All we get with with Klingons is whatever is the flavor of flavor of the of the trek of what kind how Klingons yeah handle honor. Um, but Romulans, I can think of like three diff- different Klingon or Romulan Klingon or Romulan subcultures. Like the Klingon Romulan thing might be as close as you get to like the the kind of nuance that uh, yeah. that that Bajorans get. Uh, in Picard, you get a lot of depth to that. I don't love Picard, but I do kind of like the 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 interesting stuff that it's doing with like Romulan religion and stuff. Yeah, which, um, I, I not not to take away from like the one thing I like one of the few things that I enjoy about Picard, but um, a lot of that is cribbed from Diane Twain's Romulan novels, which um are legitimately some of the best Star Trek work of like of like extended canon um something that i find very funny is that the the order for this episode 
is like this is a bottle episode. Uh it is just I mean it's it is there are no new sets or anything. Um like they there's only only one new costume. And apparently was basically like Peter Allen Fields got called into an office. He's like, hey Pete, can you do us a favor? Can you write us a show that costs nothing? <laughs> um, and he said and, and, quote, I said, of course, be glad to. And then you leave the office because you've said yes to your boss and you die a thousand deaths. <laughs> um, which I, I just find very funny. Like, you know, I'm for, for everything it is like Trek bottle episodes do uh, like can either go bad or great. And I think this is a good one. Yeah, this is this is honestly easily like in my at least top 20 for the for the series overall. It's not one that I rewatch often um, because it's so intense, but it's it's an incredible episode. Yeah. And I think something that it does well is, it, you know, it's having a very Star Trek conversation about this sort of thing um, and like sort of placing it in the point where we have now where, I mean, reconciling and finding justice for war crimes, which it's interesting here because it's like the, like the person being accused is, is a foreign, like a, it's like a Cardassian citizen who's living outside of Cardassia. Yeah. Yeah. The, the weird thing is that like, there's no UN in Star Trek. So there's nothing to mediate like these sort of things. There's, there is no Hague. There, there is no like international courts of justice, and I mean, it's fed- the Federation is the but the Federation, the Federation. Is, its, is its own faction. Yeah, you know? but I mean, they're they 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 fulfill that role, but they've also become. It's like if the U the UN absorbed the international, you know, the Hague, and but like there were also these non UN actors on the on the world stage, um, yeah, who were who were like nuclear superpowers who the UN did not have treaties with. Um, Because one thing that is like, they don't really go into, but it's undeclared. But like, this also is in TNG when the Cardassians are sort of first introduced. But the, but the Federation has been in a, has been in like a border conflict with the Cardassians for over 30 years. Yep. (laughs) Are they actively in a border conflict with the Cardassians at this time? Um, it's basically, uh, yeah, it's it's cooled down to the point where they they will res- they will get to a point where they will have a, their first like formal treaty in the coming seasons. Yeah. Uh, but basically, like I mean, like O'Brien is a survivor of the border wars. We're we're at the point where it's like they have like they they uh, they fought an undeclared war for decades, which was which. You know, it was a cold. It was a cold war and extended border conflict that was exacerbated by the fact that Starfleet doesn't fight wars. Yeah, but we'll we'll get to that down the road. But um, I mean, it's just like it's like there's no formal dialogue here to happen about the Federation, Cardassia, and another third and another independent government, Bajor. Yeah. There's nobody. There's no no one to to mediate between these things. Yeah. yeah, especially because Cardassian justice is very different from Federation justice. Yeah, very. Except for Odo, apparently, who uh, is making jokes with Gold or is I mean, you know chatting with Gold Dukat about uh, cheating at, at card games. And- oh, oh, see, 
I don't know. Um, I mean, my impression from all this, and maybe you know, this is reading from the future too. Um, Odo does not actually have any love for Cardassians. He does not approve of their form of justice. He approves of his form of justice. No, I, I don't. I didn't think he 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 was like friendly with them. I just thought it was interesting that he was on like speaking terms. I mean, I mean, he was a collaborator, terms. basically. He yeah. was yeah. he was running security on the station when Dukat was boss yeah. on the station yeah. when when Dukat was Cisco. I think Cisco's initial handling of this is a little suspect, but I think it is him acting from a place of extreme caution. Yeah. Um, but one thing he does incredibly right in this episode is say we are not going to have the former collaborator uh, be investigating the Nazi war <laughs> criminal. Yeah. Or the potential Nazi war criminal. Like, yeah. You know, you can, you can, you can, we can have him doing like stuff to ref to like liaise and get records, but he's not going to be the one handling the interrogation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found P- Cisco's attitude in this episode, especially at the top of this episode, wildly off putting the way he is extremely dispassionate and like, almost like, I don't want to say that he's unsympathetic to Kira, but in like the first third of the episode, he, you, you don't, it, you definitely feel like you want to be, you want to like shake him a little bit and be like, do you not see who's the good guy here? Like Kira's trying her best, but you get it. Like you get where he's coming from, but there's just something that yeah. I think it's more down to the performance where he's being a little more like withdrawn and a little more stiff <laughs> that it, it comes across feeling very, not hostile, but it, it's just, it does read, I don't know, dispassionate is the best word I can come up with for it. Um, but then once he and Kira have that sit down, it works much better. She has this very impassioned moment with him. And I think it, it, it works. I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure if up until that point, Cisco actually emotionally grasped the magnitude of what happened on Bajor. That like, uh, you yeah, know, I, I, I think, I think that like, they haven't had that particular conversation before where yeah. Kira is like, no, like, you know, this shit was real and it was horrible. And like, you know, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting facet. I think that like the Federation is overall wildly sheltered. Right. Yeah. Like they didn't, like when we were introduced to the Bajorans and TNG, like they don't really know what the occupation, like the extent of it. Yeah, so I can definitely see where Cisco hasn't like internalized just how bad it was and just what an emotional impact and et cetera it had. Like, you know, it's one thing mm-hmm. to like know something rationally, and it's another to like be like, oh, yeah. I that that's an interesting way of looking at it, and I think that that does add a lot of. I think that that does inform that performance a lot. I think. Yeah, because you do sort of assume that he 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 understands what the Cardassians did, but if you have that context of like maybe he doesn't entirely, it's not that he doesn't understand what they did, but there's a difference, as you say, between reading the file and being confronted with someone who is literally melting down from their trauma in front of you over it. Exactly. Someone you, someone you, and not just a, a random someone, but someone you know, someone you trust, someone you respect, that hits different. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things I really like about this too is the, the way in which it engages with like 
how does Cardassia move forward from the occupation? Yeah. Um, because but, for one thing, Cardassia has lost a major resource. Like, Cardassia is pretty resource poor, and that's why they occupy places. Yeah. I mean, there, there are two things that a, that a, gover- that a government can do. Um, one is that it can reconcile with, that it can try to you know, reconcile with its legacy as a settler state and try to work with the population at harm to, you know, try to make some, like, try to begin the process of conversation and healing. Or you can do what the American government does and (laughs) move on, double down, stick your fingers in your ears. I was going to say the British, but okay. I think really you can, any white government, any Western government could have filled that space there. Yeah. Uh, I was going to, I was going to make a, a joke about, uh, fill your museums with their artifacts uh, and proudly oh, but, refuse to but, give them back. Oh, 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 yeah. Um, because the Cardassians have the orbs. Yeah, they got, they got all, they got most, if they got most of the orbs, or at least um, they, there is an unspecified number of them. Um, yeah. That are still in Cardassian labs somewhere. We will see what happens when Cardassia decides oh hey what happens when cardassia is i think the 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 story of cardassia in ds9 is like a proper is what 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 you would call a proper dramatic tragedy because you see like there are so many points where things cardassia has the chance to try to do like to try to do something better and in fact there are steps taken, but doesn't quite ever commit fully and eventually ends up dooming itself. Yep. I think is the best way to put it. Yeah. And I think, I think like what Maritza is like wanting to do is noble if misguided. Yeah. And I like that is coming from his point of that, like he is a self-described coward who I mean, frankly, there are ways I, I like being involved in forced military service with a civilization that is not all that not only accepts but is glad that they use the death penalty is yeah. complicated for how you discuss complicity. I think Maritza himself is I, I think there's a lot like the the how complicit as a person forced to forced to military service in a forced labor camp like how much complicity is there but i like obviously it like the fact like a guy who never drew a phaser has such trauma about it is i mean it's a good thing yeah but the fact that like i mean dark heel dies the most common death of of, of a historical bastard which is in his bed old and peacefully and then, and then honored by society too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Which I think, like, that is like I think that's the most infuriating part of this episode to me is that, like, yeah, Dark Darheel gets to like die and nothing, and like there, there's no justice there. Yeah, yeah. Maritza wants to try and get closure for, like, wants to try and open this dialogue, but he's not enough. He's not a big enough fish to die on a cross. 
Uh. Yeah. This this episode also does a great job of fleshing out Goldukat some. Yeah, um, like the, who, we've the, seen Goldukat before. Like he's not being introduced here, but yeah, he's in the pilot. Yeah, but he gets a lot more nuance here. Um and and that that banter with Odo where he's like, "Oh, Odo, I missed our games." And Odo's like, "Bitch, we played one game and you cheated." Yeah. Yeah. Like that that is a perfect encapsulation of Goldukat and how he regards his memory. Yeah. Um everything about Ducat is slippery and that he's expecting whenever whenever Goldukat talks, he is expecting whoever he he is whoever he is speaking to to agree with him. Which is, oh, I mean, God. one of yeah. the most ins like he like one of his most insane qualities. Yeah, I thought that that conversation was really interesting. In that he is dead set on he's just like not interested in being helpful at all until he hears that this guy is claiming to be Darheel, and all of a sudden he's flabbergasted and is like he. Odo just plays him like a fiddle to get him to like open up these records to try and like maneuver both of these factions into, into getting what he wants. Uh, I don't like Odo, but I, as a rule, I have not liked Odo this season, but I like him in the last episode or two episodes ago. I liked him in the forsaken and I like him here. Um, he puts on his little Sherlock cap and mm-hmm. goes to work uh, he re- he really does a nice job of like getting what he wants out of Ducat here. This is a side sidebar. Weird. This episode's going to be just like hilariously long. Um, what the fuck does Gull mean? So Gull is Gull is a rick, um, and it is basically translating it. It would be commander, and that commander rank could mean anything from like a captain of a of a scout vessel to commander of a fleet group got it in the way that it is described um like the, there are only really two military ranks that we see from the cardassians there is gull which is just it is gull is somebody who is in command of something boss yeah. so it's like yeah it's yeah boss or like or commander like a gull like a gull sees over the um like a labor camp and is the captain of a ship and can be a lot of things um the other rank that we see is legate which is um like this this is basically legate is a isn't that a roman term yeah it is um it's basically it's more akin to general but like the the cardassian military is organized into what are called orders and the commander of every order is a legate basically um but basically it is there are two ranks captain and general everything else is don't worry about it all right (laughs) or commander in general yeah i I mean it's like there aren't there isn't really like they don't go a ton into like rank structure or everything, but it's like, gotcha. it almost seems like that is purposefully vague. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the, the other thing that this episode does establish is the, uh, Cardassian like cultural tendency to monologue. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we will, um, I mean, we haven't really gotten one from Garrick yet. Um, 
who hasn't appeared a ton. Uh, yeah, I was going to say this episode this episode reminded me of how little we've gotten of Garrick in the first season. Don't worry, we'll get more. Yeah, we'll get more. Um the the there it is a Cardassian species tendency to monologue. Or at least among the men. <laughs> or at least among the men of the of, of the species. Yep. Which I think is just very funny because the actor they they get a bunch of good actors and they all love to monologue and they rightfully let them. Are the Cardassians going to be one of those species that has like the Ferengi that have like built in misogyny? Um, we shall see. Is that is this I'm a not, watch and sure, find actually, out? I'm not answer? sure how I would characterize that. I I think it's I think it's a complicated answer. There is a there is a patri there is a patriarchy within Cardassian culture, but it's much more division of labor than it is oppression. Okay, so it's not that the Cardassian women are expected to be home naked, doing nothing like the Ferengis. No, it's, I know I'm um, oversimplifying the Ferengi yeah, situation. Yeah, but, but yeah, no, that's that's yeah. I mean, it is clear that they're like they're a male dominated society, but part of that is also that like the, like they only have men serve in the military. Um, and we and, that and is, we only see a lot of the mil- like mostly we only see the military. Yeah, got it. We also at at one point we do learn something about how Cardassians flirt, so that's exciting. Oh my, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> is this? I'm hoping that this is something that Garrick and Bashir do, but no. I, I won't get my. Hopes oh up. no, it's so much better. <laughs> I, I realize well, I what I'm saying. How, but, so, but the uh, the context of which we learn this is one of my favorite moments. Because right. of who it happens to. Yep. You'll just have to wait and see. Should we move on to the hands of the prophets? Sure. Yeah, let's. All right. This one's written by Robert Hewitt Wolf and directed by David Livingston. So we start with Keiko and Miles both on their way to work, with Miles starting the day right with a jump stick, which appears to be um, a basically a pint-sized Thai tea flavored lollipop. Um, and I don't mean that as pint size meaning little. I mean, it is the size of a pint. It is a wild prop. Miles claims it is full of vitamin C. Uh, Keiko rather uncomfortably ribs Miles about his attractive new Bajoran assistant engineer, Neela, and heads to the school to start lessons. But her discussion of the wormhole is interrupted by Space Karen herself, Vedic Wynn. claims that Keiko's scientific teachings about the wormhole and the aliens who reside inside are blasphemy and that she will not allow Keiko to continue teaching them to Bajoran children. Meanwhile, Miles goes to security to repair Junction, but finds Neela already completed it uh, and that one of his tools needed for accessing security systems is missing. Wynne starts to stir up the Bajoran residents on the station in favor of her cause as Keiko discusses the situation with Sisko and Kira. Kira explains that Wynne is from a small and very orthodox order and is a candidate for Kai. Kira also states that she supports Wynne's candidacy and her censorship agenda and suggests that Keiko modify her curriculum or establish a separate school for Bajoran children. Keiko rejects these suggestions and Kira rejects Sisko's suggestion that Keiko teach about the Bajoran beliefs in school. Sisko goes to Wynne at the shrine and tries to reason with her. She is unwilling to back down, claiming she is acting on behalf of the prophets. 
and implies that there will be consequences if Keiko doesn't recant. Yes, that's the word she uses. Miles' search for his missing tool has also been unsuccessful. One of his staff is also missing, too, Ensign Aquino. Neela finds a mysterious sludge in a power conduit, which turns to be an amalgamation of both the missing ensign and the missing tool, uh, apparently incinerated by a power surge. At school the next day, Wynn offers a compromise. Keiko can simply not teach anything about the wormhole at all, uh, and any future topics that might be contentious, such as evolution or the origin of the universe, can just be dealt with as they come up. Keiko refuses, and Wynn leaves with the Bajoran students, starting an official boycott. After school, Jake complains about the situation to Sisko, who urges him to be tolerant of the Bajoran beliefs, especially as the prophets and their celestial temple do actually, in fact, exist. Sisko heads to Bajor for help from Vedic Burial, the frontrunner for position of Kai and somebody far more forward-thinking than Wynn. He refuses to help, noting that allying with Sisko now will harm his chances of election, and he'll be able to help Sisko much more once he's actually Kai. Back on the station, Bajoran personnel are refusing to report for duty, and all of Sisko's work to improve relations between Bajor and the Federation seem to be just falling to pieces. Also, Bashir has discovered that Aquino wasn't killed by the power surge, but instead by a phaser. Odo further reveals that the Ensign wasn't heading to that power conduit, but instead run about Pad C. O'Brien and Neela check the runabouts, with Neela once again ahead of the game. She compliments him, and he is instantly suspicious. <laughs> he also finds evidence of tampering on runabout pad A, seemingly intended to allow the murderer to steal a runabout, but none are missing. He and Odo are interrupted by a bomb detonating in the schoolroom, thankfully with nobody hurt. Sisko tells Wynne that he is holding her responsible for the bombing and hypothesizes that she is using the school issue to drum up outrage and gain more supporters. Wynne accuses Sisko and the Federation of being soulless devils determined to destroy Bajoran culture. And Sisko counters by pointing to all the work that the Federation and Bajorans have accomplished on the station so far, side by side. Afterwards, Wynne meets with Neela, who is upset that her escape plan has been disrupted, uh, but Wynne urges who her to continue with their plan regardless, whatever their plan may be. In the wake of the bombing, Baral comes to the station to try to resolve matters, and O'Brien discovers more sabotage, this time disabling the weapon sensors on the promenade. He also recognizes Neela's engineering style and warns Sisko of her intentions just in time for him to leap into the crowd. This is also literally leap into the crowd uh, and cause her shot at Baral to miss. Odo arrests her, and Kira accuses Wynne of orchestrating the entire episode as an assassination attempt on Boreal, and she does not deny this accusation. In the epilogue in Ops, Sisko confirms that they have no evidence against Wynne, as Neela refuses to incriminate her. Kira admits to supporting Wynne because she envied the spiritual leader's depth of belief, and she also admits that Sisko was right in his speech about cooperation. Things might still be rocky between the Federation and Bajor, but maybe they've made some progress after all. Oof. <laughs> Two oofs. Yeah. This episode d- goes all over the place. It was it was such, such an oof to watch. Yeah. But I do want to point out that I called Neela literally in her first moment on screen. Yeah. Yeah. That was impressive. Like... Like, good job, man. Like, I was I was genuinely impressed. Yeah. She just has, she had that vibe. But like the second, I, I think it was mostly because they made the, the point of like Keiko joking about her 
hitting on O'Brien. And I was like, look, this show was made in the 90s. Like, O'Brien is not supposed to be a a uh, a sex figure here. Like, they are not going to introduce a, a, a female character that that is in any way supposed to be attracted to Miles O'Brien unless it is plot appropriate unless it is plot relevant unless, unless it's relevant to the to him unless him being attractive is relevant <laughs> yeah that said if i put aside my sort of personal bullshit i think this is a very good episode <laughs> i wildly dislike not dislike but i i have a, a lot of like personal baggage around like reli- like this religious stuff Mm-hmm. And like my background is in philosophy and religion. So like, this is a subject that I get bent out of shape about. Mm-hmm. If you've listened to my other podcast, you know that I fucking started writing a master's thesis on eschatology and fucking Tolkien. Like these are things <laughs> I think about. Yeah. So I, I care about this stuff. And so space Karen, as you refer to her is a character. So deftly sketched here. In like sketch here. I love that. <laughs> just like not it takes one scene for you to know everything you need to know about this mm-hmm. character. Within within 30 seconds. Not even it doesn't take 30 seconds. Yeah. Three sentences. Yeah. And you immediately know you're gonna hate this character. This is why. And it only gets worse every time she opens her goddamn mouth. And that Welcome to the rest made... of this show. <laughs> oh, fuck you. Really? Oh, oh, my child. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. She... Are you telling me this is... when when oh, continues to be a recurring character. She continues to be impeccably acted. Just absolute fucking legend. She continues to be the person who, like... As soon as you see her on screen, you start gritting your teeth so hard that like your gums bleed. I don't I, I am both excited for that, but also have no desire to see this this character ever again on the show. <laughs> you, that and that's exact- exactly that's exactly the energy they go for. Yeah, it's like that, that is the oh, no. that is the reaction you want. Um Poop, by the way, uh is played by uh Louise Fletcher, who I mean R.I.P. Uh, yeah, who uh only passed last year, but um is mainstream audiences would best know her as um Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> Shut up, really? Yep. Absolutely, <laughs> yep. Yep. Wow. Talk about some fucking that is the most bananas casting and so good here. Oh, it's she's like, incredible. I yeah. I like the the like my, I joke about this because I don't wear a watch like that. But like my initial reaction to, to like that when the when the door first opens, she steps in is like, "Hey, your heart rate spiked a lot. Are you okay? Are you having a heart attack?" <laughs> like it's it's right. like the neurochemical response that this woman in like this character invokes in me is just like, oh, it's terrifying. It's like yeah. the concept of like you know art where like a valid way to make art is to make something that everybody fucking hates yeah. because it's an emotional reaction yeah. right like if yeah. you make something that like that somebody fucking hates like that's that's success 
And this is exactly what Wynn well, is. Well, then, yeah, big success here, because God, from her first, from the first sentence she says to the last dirty look she gives Kira, I want, I wanted to to throw her out an airlock every single second she was on screen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. knowing that I'm going to have to deal with her through the entire run of this show makes me a little bit crazy. Um, not gonna lie. <laughs> she's 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 like recurring. Yeah, you know, she's not there in every episode. Don't worry. Yeah, no, I. You she, she's like be just there in the relevant stuff, but like she's gonna win, isn't she? We're not gonna get the nice, bland, liberal. Why would you? Kai. Have we're gonna get. Yeah, we. It's we're, we're gonna get Kai, uh, space inquisitor, aren't we? I mean. It's not fun if the it's like if you have a cho- if you if you if you've got a drama and it's like your two options for the pope are liberal reformer and orthodox asshole. I mean, there's <laughs> <laughs> yep. yeah. All right. Um, also, you've I, also I'm pretty sure that you've heard Justin and I talking about her as Kai Wynn before. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, OK. Kai. OK, that makes sense then. Yeah, I had to put that together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because I'm definitely like I think both of us have definitely called her Kaiwin before. Yeah, in front it's, of you. it's like it's not. Well, a s- I thought it was that in the past. I thought you were referring to Kaio the character that was on yeah. Kaiopaka that was on the moon. No, no, no. And and this is and this is you know when you were saying like, gosh, I don't know why everybody hates the Kai. Like she's so nice. She's got to come back like, from this too. Like, and yeah. and we're like, oh, buddy. <laughs> Christ. The the level of hate that like I I first of all Louise Fletcher was apparently like she had the time of her life playing this character uh which go off queen. Uh um, yeah. yeah. And like but the 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 amount of la- like the 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 amount of like hate I have for this character and the like how much I enjoy her being an antagonist in the show. I don't I think most of the time she's not a villain, but she mm-hmm. is an antagonist. Um is like the only other character who is just like the only other character I can think of in media of like, oh god, that motherfucker. Um is like <laughs> the character of Vince McMahon. <laughs> of like who is a terrible human being and like but has a like, you know, the character he plays on television. Um it's like that's the only thing I can think of like that visceral of a gut reaction of like, oh this fucker, I hate this shit already. And yeah. and I love that we learn more about her throughout the course of the series, but but you still fucking hate her. It's great. Like, you know, you can learn all sorts of things about her backstory and be like, that's very sad. I still hate you. Um, <laughs> she has compared her in interviews to Margaret Thatcher. Like, uh, like Fletcher <laughs> compared uh, to, uh, with the Margaret Thatcher, which is like, no, that is the exact energy that you have there. Yeah. Uh, oh, incredible. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, or I'm the David Koresh of space. Wow. <laughs> which is unhinged and honestly wow. love that. It's it's this character. I is, wonder, <laughs> did they get letters about this, this episode? There has to have been some p- people that were very offended by this episode, seeing themselves depicted in, in like... The, the the space version, I mean, probably, but like you know, 
Star Trek has always pushed the envelope, right? Like, you know, no, I'm this just stuff, curious. This stuff, like, I mean, it's in it's in the fucking discussions about school and education now, too, obviously. Yeah. But like, yeah. you know, like it, you know, was... evolution, like back in 1993, like should evolution be taught in schools was like <laughs> yeah. a major thing. Yeah. Uh, speaking as a parent, my kid's too young for a lot of that stuff yet, but a lot of, you know, my wife is a teacher and we have friends that teach in the local high school school district. And so the, the recent kerfuffles around LGBTQ representation in schools and what school districts are allowed to say and stuff are like very close to home for me. So mm. this episode hooked me hard. The, the line, the, the, the bit about just don't teach it. Uh, yeah, is that like, one. Is like, how did this become more relevant in 30 years? Yeah. Fucking Star Trek, man. Like yeah. sometimes, it, sometimes Star Trek is completely missing. Like sometimes it completely misses like the pulse of something. Sometimes yeah. it just latches onto something and it's unfortunately incredibly timeless. Yeah, yeah, DS9 is, I mean, first it has the accidental accurate trans narrative, and now it's got uh, a school censorship episode that is uncannily accurate <laughs> Yeah, um, 30 years later. It's bananas. Uh, terrific. And terrific. It's also such a fascinating episode because, like, like, obviously I hate I, like I hate Win, and I hate that she's we like. We can't say this school. enough. We hate this character. <laughs> but like, also, there are aspects in which she's not a hundred percent wrong, and I hate it. Yeah, but I mean, that's right? what makes it good. I mean, right? I mean, like from an educational standpoint, especially on a Bajoran space station, having a syncretic lesson plan where you like also look at the cultural like the cultural context of yeah. the wormhole for Bajoran students. And I mean, hey, for the Federation kids, it would probably be a cool thing for them to learn about like, oh hey, this is the culture that you're dealing with on a daily basis. Like what is their like what is their what are their views about this specific, like this phenomenon that we live around. And you know, I think you can't base the entire you can't obviously can't base the entirety of your curriculum on this. It'd be a, it'd be a valuable part of the module, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of what makes this storyline, what makes the conflict between Keiko and uh, Space Karen so frustrating, is that it is easy to see that there could be a yeah. middle path. Yeah, that like you know, if Ke if Keiko said like, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm you know, I'm not an expert on Bajoran culture. I'm gonna talk about the science of the wormhole next week." We've got a like historian from Bajor U who's going to come and talk about like the cultural, you know, the cultural aspects yeah. of the wormhole. And like, that'll be, that'll be next week. And like, yeah. Hope y'all. Yeah. And you know that it. if they had, if, if, if she had come in on that note and not on the space fundamentalist note, Keiko would have been down for that. And so that that's part of what I think works about this episode is that you can definitely, you can feel that, that Wynn is aiming for the most antagonistic oh, route absolutely. Yes. through because, this entire thing. Yeah, because yeah. that's what she wants. Yeah, I mean, if it, it's... Her goal is antagonization. She is not yeah. operating in good faith here because, I mean, part of this is also that Keiko as a, like, the human secularism, like the, anthro the mm -hmm. anthrocentric secularism that comes from 
being like a human in Gene Roddenberry Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, It means that like, no, I'm not going to teach. I'm not going to teach a religious thing in my school. Yeah. And it means that like, and because of that, Gwyn has identified the, the, the show that she is in and that, you know, she's not going to get anything. So she's just going to go full, full on in here. So she's never negotiating in good faith. I like, yeah, like, exactly. like the if this was a real thing, and you know, there this was a actual legitimate concern, but it's like none of the parents have complained, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Like none of the parents complain. This is some moms for liberty bullshit. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and it really does like shine a light on the Federation slash humans within the Federation's like vibes with religion in a way that like a lot of other star trek just completely ignores because like you've got jake coming into cisco's office being like you know i hate this because like the bajoran religion is stupid and they're stupid for believing in it and cisco's like wait like rewind yeah Yeah. let's back up very slightly uh and that's one thing i really wanted to call out is i really really liked how cisco handled that conversation yeah in that he said, A, they're actually real. So let's not entirely dismiss this. But also, B, don't forget that they just spent 50 years being stomped on by an oppressive regime. And that this was the center, like, this is the only thing that gave them hope. Yeah. And you have to recognize the place of cultural significance these beliefs come from. And you can't imagine what these what these beliefs mean to them and you can't dismiss it either and i really respect that he's especially in the wake of what cisco learned you know what we went through last episode too <laughs> yeah so i think it really is a a really good way for him to talk to jake about like it's not just that these are aliens and you know i've met them they're real aliens and they have some funny beliefs about these aliens but you know it's whatever but he's also saying there's a not just a not just like a cute cultural tradition about it, but like there is a present traumatic thing happening with this religion that you can't dismiss simply be as wrong beliefs. Yeah. yeah. Like, even if they were demo- even if they were there was no wormhole, even if there were no weird time aliens in it, this belief system is important to these people whose world we live in or above, whatever. And that belief system is fundamental to how they survived the last 50 years of oppression. So it's a thing you have to respect and navigate as you live in this world. And that's an incredibly nuanced message to give in an episode where the primary antagonist is a religious fundamentalist who is actively kicking over their, their, their fucking dishes. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's a real nice needle to thread. And I think it's nicely done. I think a lot of the time, the Federation and the its citizens are a bad day away from being an r slash atheism post. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting yep. it. I think that like the best of the Federation and how like that sort of like humanism comes out is like maybe not is recognizing spiritual practices from other cultures and religions. And being like curious and respectful, which is a lot more I mean, to me, that is a lot more interesting because I think that 
I think that the 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 atheism of Star Trek is one of its sort of failure points. Yeah, and I it's it's something that I've always felt really weird about with yeah. Star Trek too, because like yes, sure, it's a space science space utopia, but also sure the Enterprise is the flagship and it gets up to an unusual amount of bullshit. But if every ship in the fleet gets up to one percent of the horse shit the Enterprise gets up to. <laughs> Every officer in Starfleet has seen space gods and weird aliens with powers beyond description. Like, the universe is a demonstrably fucking bananas place. Are you really going to try and look down your goddamn nose at someone who looks at all this absolutely banana pants stuff going on out in the universe and be like, but no religion? Yeah. No, we don't believe in that. No, the the universe is full of weird, weird crap. Jean-Luc Picard had a god flirt with him for fucking six seasons yeah right and you're gonna really and you're gonna really like sneer about religion it just feels incredibly fake to me one of my favorite like random headcanons thing is that uh starfleet has a department for like observing and chronicling godlike deities and it's all just a bunch of philosophy majors getting into constant fist fights with each other (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, I would join that department. I mean, it, it's like the like anytime you think of like I was I was telling Anna about this earlier today. I have a I have an idea for a fanfic of writing about um the like the working group of like like ends or whatever that are assigned to read Starfleet mission logs and like not not like do anything with them, not even like redact them or anything, but just like tag them for like search <laughs> engines. It's like hashtag godlike being, hashtag Greece, ancient, hashtag hand, giant, hashtag historical implications. <laughs> Just like stuff like that of like Abraham Lincoln question mark. <laughs> um, I mean, it's like, yeah, it, it's I think I think one thing that I like I find really interesting here in this episode is like not only as like are you seeing the the Bajoran faith as a as a spiritual practice but also as an organized religion which are two yeah. different things like there is there is Bajoran prophet worship and like an overwhelming majority like a, a fractionally small infinitesimal amount of Bajorans have ever like been in the same room as an orb much less had a vision compared to you know all of the, like, it, compared to, like, the Vedics, which are, like, a small amount of them. And so it's, like, you have, like, the majority of Bajorans who have never, like, seen the prophets or anything, but still have a belief system around it. And then you have these fucking College of Cardinals being, yep. uh, like, I'm, Iris Stephen Bear said in, like, the notes for this episode that, like, that they, they specifically look to 16th century Catholicism, to which... Like, I became the sickos yep. meme of like, yeah, baby, <laughs> give me that shit. Because um, that's, that's, you know, that's a story and it's like, there's nothing I love more than the random petty religious collegiate bullshit. And, oh, and the way that the two Vedics are so catty with each other. Oh, God, yeah, I love them. Like, like, Wynn has been blessing your station. <laughs> Beryl, my good friend. My favorite part was when uh, Beryl arrives and uh, Wynn goes right for his ear and he's just like, mm, 
no. And he like intercepts her hand. Yeah. It was just such a such a nice little fuck you, just like, nope, you don't get to, you don't get to grab my paw. That's not I, we don't do and that. Like, and like Beryl is like Beryl is like telling Cisco it's like, I hate it. If I'm Kai, I'm going to stop it. Um because I've had people grabbing my ear my entire fucking life. Um, which honestly love that. I like yeah. if if I you know, it's one of those things of like, yes, if I was nominated to a position of power, I would do something st- that silly. And like petty. So one other thing that I like, I, I picked up in this episode is the difference between Wynn's followers and Beryl's followers. I didn't think about that until I saw your note about it. And then, but I like immediately had a flash in my head and I know, yeah, it that's a great yeah. point. Where, where like all of Wynn's followers are uniformed and all like moving as one. Whereas like Beryl is like fucking like, like hugging kids it's like it's it is the masses yeah yeah no he's a he's like a celebrity he's like kissing babies and like giving giving space high fives and uh meanwhile win has got like you know some boring some boring flock of uh uh space aesthetics there to get quark all riled up because he thinks that the religious fundamentalists are gonna are gonna take the most advantage of his dabo girls the other thing that i like that i think is really interesting for the season or for like this as a season finale is one it echoes the pilot very well Mm -hmm. the other thing is is that this is a departure from basically every other star trek series what every every star trek was what tng was doing and what voyager will do which is that like TNG and two parters, uh, two parter cliffhangers to end seasons. Ugh. Yeah. Really glad that they don't do that. Yeah. Part of that was due, like originally this episode was spo- like the, the original idea for this episode was going to be a crossover with TNG. I'm glad they didn't. But do that. yeah, they ran out of money. <laughs> which and we got something much better. Yeah. Which I think is like it, it, it led to a better episode. And we are going to see a pattern, which I really enjoy, is that each season of DS9 ends with something big happening, but then you get a couple months of time passing. Interesting. And, and like, and so there are no direct, cl- there. there's like no, like, X part one, X part two cliffhangers in DS9. Instead, the season ends, things happen and then and, you get a three-parter. And then and then you and then and then the new season picks up thematically from where it left off. So yeah. like with the consequences of those big changes. Yeah. And yeah. like it it it's I think a lot more interesting. Yeah. Uh, like of like how it's like I mean part of this is also it's a little bit safer for if your show gets canceled early. Uh, yeah. Where, looking at looking at you, Farscape. Um, but yeah, it's like it, it's like it sort of like sets things off and let and lets the universe sort of it lets and lets the story move a little bit. Like it, like nothing like there aren't a lot of you like huge things that happen in between seasons. You can just imagine some of those like pocket paperbacks coming in. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like time passes and people react to the things that are happening, which cool. I think is I think it's a fun strategy they take there. It's one of the few times in Star Trek where like time gets to pass for a significant amount of time and it's like directly referenced. 
Yeah. Whereas like, yeah. Where like the episodic stuff, it's like, you know, sometimes you'll get a reference of like, oh, this event that happened three episodes ago was like a month ago or something. But here it's like, oh, yeah, no, I like I, I don't think like sometimes they'll give us like uh, like, oh, hey, it's been like six weeks or something since the events of the finale or something. But sometimes mm-hmm. they'll just like you get the sense of like time passed. I'm going since we're already at an hour 20 with this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I think we'll do like a separate mini episode because we're, we've got it. We're going to be taking a leisurely break for a little bit uh, because we're we we haven't even released episode one and we finished season one. Yeah. We're we're building up our buffer again. Yeah. Yep. So. um, But yeah. Any closing th- thoughts? My Atherbeth co-host will probably strangle me for these thoughts. But uh, the. Rewatching DS9 as an adult is making me like TNG less. Interesting. Because I think a lot of the stuff that I liked about TNG was characters, and I still love the characters, mm-hmm. but I reflect on the way that those episodes were were structured and the way some of those plots were built, and I find them, they don't compare favorably to some of the, the stuff that DS9 is starting to do. So we'll see how it holds up over the course of seasons. Mm-hmm. But I'm very, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying what DS9 is doing, even when we have to deal with horseshit like Dramatis Personae. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Um, my only other closing thought is that uh, this has been a real fun return to form for us. I really enjoyed Person of Interest. I love that show. I love what it does. It's, it's yeah. nice to be silly again. It doesn't, ins- it doesn't inspire us to the same heights. <laughs> Well, I, I think I think we have I think what it taught us is that the sweet spot for our bullshit is nineties sci-fi. <laughs> God help us. And yeah. I think I think that, that is I think I think that's what it's taught us. Or at and, least uh, or at least silly sci-fi, right? Yeah. yeah. Like Yeah. You know silly sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh I'm really, really enjoying that because there's been this has been a whole lot of fun. Uh, this first season, and I'm looking forward to next season. I only have one closing thought, which is I was really surprised. Like, you know, I haven't done a full rewatch of DS9 in a while, and I've been surprised by how few stinkers there are in season one. Yeah, I think I think there are episodes that I'm like, there are a lot of episodes that I like say like, uh, I'm not like super keen, and if I'm like, if I'm wanting to get to the deluge of plot in like seasons three and four. It's like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be a little, I'd probably skip a lot of episodes, but like there's a lot yeah. of like solid C episodes, solid C or B episodes. Yeah. Like that, that, you know, there, there's only really one that we came across and we're just like, this is absolute trash. Yeah. Um, which is honestly really impressive for a Star Trek season one. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. Like comparing it to TNG or Voyager season one, both of which were like at least half garbage. Yeah. Yeah. I'm laughing because I could just see your cats beefing it over your shoulder. <laughs> on. <laughs> All right. So for our next episode, we are going to be covering, we're going to do, it's a three parter, which had never been done before in Star Trek. Normally, when we do three episodes, three, uh, we cover three episodes in one recording. That is because there's some, there's like a stinker or a nothing burger. Oh boy, that is not the case <laughs> here. So join us next time for season two episodes 
One, two, and three. The Homecoming, The Circle, and The Siege. Oof. That's not Until an next intimidating time. set of titles. Until next time, just keep circling the stage. Keep circling. Keep, keep circling. circling. Just keep, keep circling. circling, my child. God damn it. <laughs> just keep circling. Yeah. Keep just circling. keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license. this opportunity to crack my neck you're gonna enjoy that solid audio there aaron That's going to make it into an outtake some someday.